Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Everyone, I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And I've been waiting. I mean, we all have, haven't we? Waiting to learn what the January 6th committee had found out waiting to see who might testify, waiting to hear from the people who already spoke to the committee, waiting to see what was happening behind the scenes, not just at the White House, but also inside the Capitol, where the vice president and both chambers of Congress were really running for their lives. We've been waiting to see how this is actually playing out before the electorate or whether any opinions, let alone potential maybe votes or legislation, might actually change. We've also been waiting for what the person who obviously seems to be at the center of the committee's attention, former President Donald J. Trump, wondering what he has to say about all the committee's assertions. And there are a lot of them, like that he was told his scheme was to overturn the election was, in fact, illegal. But he pressured his vice president to go along with it anyway. Things like he knew that Mike Pence's life was in danger at the Capitol, but kept publicly lashing out at him during the attack anyway. Well, the wait seems to be over, because today in his first public appearance since the hearing, well, he didn't really deny any of that exactly. Instead, he admitted he did pressure Pence to try to keep him in power. But he did deny one thing. I never called Mike Pence a wimp. I never called him a wimp. Mike Pence had a chance to be great. He had a chance to be, frankly, historic. But just like Bill Barr and the rest of these weak people, Mike, and I say it sadly because I like him, but Mike did not have the courage to act. The truth is he could have sent it back to the state legislatures. I said to Mike, if you do this, you can be Thomas Jefferson. So he didn't call Mike Pence a wimp on that alleged heated phone call on the morning of January 6th. He just accused him of not having any courage or weak like the rest of them. Not sure I'm seeing the qualitative difference here. And his rioters were hunting the vice president down that day. Trump was actually tweeting the same. And the former vice president had to go into hiding because that mob was so whipped up into a frenzy. And while he was hiding... And we just saw these pictures that he actually watched Trump praise that mob, telling him he loved them and that they were very special. Really one of the most surreal snapshots in American history. And today, the ex-president even floated pardons for some of those rioters if he ever gets back into the White House. So there is, of course, no backing down from the election lies that he has spoken of. And we're going to dig in more tonight on just how those lies are still putting democracy at risk long after January 6th. Remember this warning from former conservative federal judge Michael Ludig yesterday? Listen to this. Still, Donald Trump and his 
allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. Clear and present danger to American democracy. He's referring to how the lies related to the elections have metastasized and how they keep seeming to threaten future elections. And we're seeing this kind of scenario play out now in all kinds of ways and not just in large cities. A GOP commission in a tiny county in New Mexico was just refusing to certify a primary vote over baseless claims about Dominion voting machines. Sound a little familiar? And in a moment, we're going to talk to the Secretary of State, who sued to protect the will of the voters there, and won. But the question really is, is this just a preview of what's to come this November 2022, or maybe a look ahead to November 2024? And really, will these January 6th hearings help prevent any so-called clear and present dangers to our democracy? I'm joined now by a member of the January 6th Select Committee, Congressman Jamie Raskin. Welcome to the program. I'm glad you're here today, Congressman. All eyes have really been on these hearings, waiting to see what might unfold. And I'm wondering from your perspective initially, how do you think it's going in the, in the mission to alert the public about not only the need for the committee, but the clear and present danger that it still poses? <clears throat> well, the evidence is so overwhelming that even Donald Trump isn't trying to lie about it anymore. Uh, he just came right out tonight and essentially uh, affirmed everything we're saying. He never uh, challenged the idea that he's been lying about who won the election. He never challenged the idea that he's been ripping off uh, his followers by pretending that their money was somehow going into litigation or, uh, you know, anything to try to overturn the official result. Um, and uh, he's basically did nothing to challenge any fact that we have um, adduced in this process. No, he just comes out and he says, well, he didn't call uh, Mike Pence a wimp. He basically is just calling him a coward. He didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done. In other words, Trump is saying that he was right in trying to force Mike Pence into violating his constitutional role by unilaterally rejecting electoral college votes and irrigating to himself the right to decide who would be president of the United States. Um, I mean, well, this Congressman, is just you're right. He hasn't been challenging. You're right that he hasn't been challenging it, but the committee is being challenged as we speak from the Department of Justice. I'd love for you to address it because there has been um, some allegations away from the DOJ that the committee is is having some hand in delaying prosecutions of very important cases, including those surrounding the Proud Boys. I want you to respond. They wrote a letter actually about this very issue um, that we can put up on the screen as well, where the quote says, the select committee's failure to grant the department access to these transcripts, transcripts about what's happening on the Hill right now, complicates the department's ability to investigate and prosecute those who engaged in criminal conduct in retaliation to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. I bring this up, of course, Congressman, because you know, as well as I do, that the committee's work is legislative as an oversight function. It's the Department of Justice has the prosecution, prosecution angle of this. Can you respond to the claims that the committee is not being forthcoming and maybe undermining DOJ's ability to prosecute? Is that true? Well, I'm not going to enter into the specifics of any dialogue taking place between the Department of Justice and the select committee about evidence. All I will say is that was not a challenge in any way to the 
factual authenticity of the evidence that we presented to the people. They're basically just saying they want access to interviews with more than a thousand people that uh, we have engaged in. Um, and, um, you know, I'm going to leave it, give to, it to the them? chair of the committee. Yeah. Well, the chair give, of the committee and uh, our, our legal staff uh, are involved in a process uh, to deal with all of those things. They're not just turning everything they have over to us because they're governed by particular guidelines and strictures. And it's the exact same thing with us. It's a separation of powers. And they have all the same uh, investigative authorities and powers that we have, including the subpoena power. Um, <clears throat> and so we are trying to get our story out there to the people. But I'm sure we're going to be able to work things out with the Department of Justice. Well, I'm sure they are optimistic that would happen. Of course, as a former prosecutor, I think to myself of having to dot my I's and cross my T's. And if there is information that I need to provide, if it's exculpatory, if it's additive in some way to the defense or even my own case, I'm, I'm hopeful that there'll be an opportunity to have that symbiotic relationship coming to play. But I wonder about people's perspective now of what's happening internally in the committee, Congressman, because part of the week involved um, a bit of a, I would say, an interesting discussion and disagreement about whether or not there'd be criminal referrals. I know you've spoken out about this particular issue and what that could really look like. But what do you make of and how can the people interpret who are watching these hearings about a perceived disconnect as to why there hasn't been the hearings around the DOJ component, the corruption of the DOJ? That was one thing that was highlighted in earlier testimony or earlier um, previews of the hearings. What's going on with that? Well, um, you know, each one of these hearings is taking on a huge domain in terms of the facts and what the hearings are doing are looking at different streams of development leading up to January 6th. So there was the uh, attack on the state legislatures and an attempt to get them to nullify the popular vote and just install electors for Trump. And you'll hear about that. There is the attack on the election officials. And that's coming up too. people like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to try to force them simply to invent votes for mm -hmm. Donald Trump. There was also this plot that you refer to to try to get the Department of Justice to describe the election as corrupt as a pretext for getting Mike Pence to unilaterally uh, extinguish electoral college votes coming in from the state. So all of that is going to be told in due course over the next couple of weeks. And we're trying to lay it out as systematically as possible. Are you having um, difficulties at all trying to get the witnesses that you seek? I mean, the American Elect is aware that there were subpoenas that were handed out, of course, to members of Congress who seem to have thumbed their nose in return, at least um, as long as we as far as we know about the issue. Are you having difficulty trying to nail down the witnesses for these hearings? Is there a scheduling issue? I mean, I know we had at least one person who had um, his wife gave birth this week and congratulations to him. But are there outstanding issues in terms of getting people to be cooperative and forthcoming in front of the cameras? Well, my rule of thumb is the closer you get to Donald Trump, the more difficult it, it gets to uh, have them come in and voluntarily cooperate. But the good news is the vast majority of people, more than a thousand people, have either complied with the subpoena or just voluntarily come in and consented to participate. But it's true. We've had to uh, issue um, contempt citations against people like uh, Peter Navarro 
and um, uh, Dan Scavino and Mark Meadows and uh, Steve Bannon. I mean, these are people who seriously think because they know Donald Trump, they're above the law. Uh, we've been winning in court. We won in court as recently as uh, two days ago, I think it was, uh, when U.S. District Court Judge Nichols in the District of Columbia uh, rejected Steve Bannon's attempt to, mm -hmm. uh, to quash the indictment against him um, and rejected all of his constitutional claims and all of the nonsense about how we are an unlawful committee and we are unlawfully composed and we don't have a real legislative purpose and all that. All of that's been rejected repeatedly in the courts and yet still we hear it from uh, Trump sycophants and acolytes sure. who really act as though they're above the law. So we haven't let that stop us. We're collecting all the evidence we can from videos, from photographs, from the interviews we've done, uh, from these live witnesses. And, you know, the truth is going to set us free here. We're in a democracy and the people have the right to the information that they need to make uh, decisions uh, for the future of the country. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you so much. We look forward to seeing more from the committee. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. The question now really is what does a January 6th rider do after being sentenced for their role in trying to block the election certification? Well, the man who learned his fate today also happens to be a county commissioner. And this afternoon, he tried to stop yet another election certification back home. Now, there are guardrails for democracy. You heard the congressman speak about those very issues. And we're going to talk about one of those guardrails next. Well, the case of one Capitol rider in particular shows the risks still looming over our elections. Coy Griffin avoided more jail time for his role in the January 6th attack. But back home in New Mexico, Griffin is a county commissioner. And this afternoon, the three-member commission in Otero County voted two to one to certify the results of last week's primary election. But it took a direct order from the state Supreme Court to actually force that vote. And in despite of that order, despite that order, Griffin actually voted no, citing his, quote, gut feeling and intuition, unquote. The New Mexico Secretary of State is Democrat Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, and she joins me tonight. Secretary, thank you for being here. For many people who might be learning about this for the first time, this is something you know intimately well. It's happening under, you know, your watch and what's going on. Tell me, how did it get to this point, though? I mean, this sounds a lot like the deja vu all over again that many have been talking about when Dominion has been involved in the allegations of something untoward, although there are lawsuits pending to try to acknowledge that bit of defamation. How did it get to this point? I think we can uh, trace the through line all the way back to right after the general election in 2020. Um, we certainly saw one particular culmination of that in on January 6, 2021. Um, however, no matter how much information there is out there debunking, uh, ensuring that there's correct information, combating this and disinformation that is part of the big lie from 2020. It continues to fester and it continues to grow and it has done so in this particular county in my state and the individuals who are propagating it are trying to build an audience elsewhere around the state as well. And it's deeply concerning and troubling. 
Let's follow that thread a little bit. Assuming the state Supreme Court had not ruled in the way it did, what would have happened if it hadn't been certified? Uh, our democracy, uh, particularly in this county, would have would have gone off a cliff. Um, all of the voters, the 7,300 voters, Republicans, Democrats, and, and uh, Libertarians who cast their ballots would have been disenfranchised. Um, every single election in that county that was uh, decided upon or, or nominations made uh, for county level offices would have been thrown out. Those candidates would never have appeared on the general election ballot. And most importantly, it would have been an unprecedented uh, violation of our democratic process that could have sown seeds of disaster uh, across our state as well as other states uh, for not only this general election in 2022, uh, but for 2024 as well. In fact, I mean, you talk about this notion as a potential blueprint. And for some listening, they may say, well, this is just what's happening there in Otero County. It's it's unique to where it's happening right there. It's not really a microcosm of other things, except for what you've just spoken about. I mean, the idea of the connective tissue being the idea that people can choose not to certify elections based on what he described as a, a gut feeling and intuition it doesn't, it's very foreboding to think about how this might become a blueprint down the line. Have you spoken with other secretaries of state about these issues in terms of what, what must be done to try to safeguard, and not with the eye towards a particular party being in power or a particular person winning an election, but the idea that when people vote for a candidate they're choosing, they've got the opportunity to have that vote counted and eventually certified. Is there a collective you know, discussion happening right now across this country in preparation for what might be to come? Well, absolutely. And I think the challenge with elections is we always know there are going to be issues that arise. We just never quite know what they are. Well, I think we've seen this, is, had been, this has been a canary in the coal mine here in New Mexico for what, what might happen. Uh, again, in November of this year or of 2024. So yes, my colleagues and I are talking. I know everybody is watching very closely as to what occurs here. But I will say, you know, this is exactly why we build so many checks and balances into our election process. I think here in New Mexico, however, we've identified a vulnerability. And so I'll be working with my colleagues to make sure that their processes in their states are completely shored up so that it doesn't fall on, let's just say, one individual who participated in, in the January 6th insurrection to completely overturn the outcome of an election. What is the vulnerability you're talking about specifically? Is the idea that this particular candidate was a vulnerability or there is something about the way in which the process to certify is vulnerable, that it could lend itself to this happening again, even if this person was not a commissioner? Is that the fact? Well, I, I think that what I'm trying to express in this case is that we ha we have a, a commission in a very Republican part of the state made up of Republicans. That's not abnormal. Uh, but because they were susceptible to the lies, uh, the big lie and misinformation and disinformation that are a part of that, um, they we found, okay, here's a chink in the armor. If they don't certify, they can unilaterally disenfranchise the votes of 7,300 voters. So we need to make sure that we have a backup and process. But I think the important thing to note in this case was there really wasn't a discretionary duty here. There, there wasn't a, oh, I have a feeling about this and therefore I can say, no, it was mandatory. A court ordered that the commission do their job in this case, but it should never have gotten to that point in the first place. So let's see how we can maybe avert that in the future. 
I see many parallels to what's being discussed legislatively on the Hill in terms of Electoral Count Act and other measures as well. Secretary Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's not even a month after the Uvalde school rampage. But watch what happened when a conservative Texas senator who's merely negotiating with Democrats on a gun safety package tried to address his fellow Republicans back home today. Yet tonight, that same senator is suggesting there's real progress on Capitol Hill. So the question is, can any deal withstand the pressure you saw like this? We'll talk about it next. Well, tonight, a third victim is dead after being shot at an Alabama church. Authorities say worshipers were holding a potluck last night when a 70-year-old attendee pulled out a handgun and started firing. Someone stopped him before police could get there, but not before two senior citizens were killed. And now a third. Investigators say that the motive is not yet known, but they suspect that he went to the church occasionally and is believed to have acted alone. This is just the latest shooting at a public center and house of worship. Among the horrified community members, former Senator Doug Jones, who says this attack should serve as a wake-up call for lawmakers. Birmingham community area is known as the city of churches. There's a church everywhere because we have such an affinity, both for our faith and our houses of worship, regardless of your religion, that when something happens there, you expect that to be the safest place you can be. It goes to show that no community uh, is immune uh, from this kind of uh, gun violence that we see playing out across the country. No one is immune. Yet in the weeks since the mass shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde, even though it's stated and known that it seems that nowhere is immune, as the former senator articulated, there's still no deal in Washington, D.C. Senate negotiators are stuck on two main points. One is how to structure federal funding for state red flag laws. And the other is how to close that so-called boyfriend loophole. Let's talk about it now with two political veterans, Ashley Allison and Doug High. I'm glad you're both here. I want to drill right in to this issue of the so-called boyfriend loophole because, one, people said somehow this feels different this time in terms of legislation. And there was thoughts that, hey, if there was a preliminary deal that included the closing of the boyfriend loophole, which would allow anyone who has been convicted of a crime against somebody in an intimate partner relationship who hasn't been the boyfriend or have a child with or is married to, a stalker, for example, or otherwise, they would not be able to have a gun. And yet, this is not seeming to be a part of it any longer. Doug, what's behind that? Why would this be off the table? I mean, the NRA obviously has been very vocal in the past about the Violence Against Women Act, but what's behind this decision to take this off the table? Is it the lobbying that's the most impactful? No, I don't, I don't think it's the lobbying that's most impactful. There's not as much lobbying happening on, on Capitol Hill on this as, as you'd think. And you're talking about a small universe of senators who, the good news is, these aren't the bomb throwers and the loudmouths. These are the productive senators on both sides of the aisle who want to reach a deal. But what we see on this, and you, know, you mentioned the Violence Against Women Act, I've worked on um, reauthorization of that in the past. That's where the boyfriend loophole really first um, came up. And what we see when you deal with legislation and the intricacies of it, which don't get a lot of attention usually in the media, 
is that good ideas often get lost in the devil in the details. And legitimate questions of jurisdiction, uh, legitimate questions of due process, which has certainly happened in past reauthorizations of the Violence Against Women Act, mean that things that maybe maybe seem common uh, common sense to people don't really happen in the end. You mean the due process in terms of the thought the NRA was promoting was that, listen, if you take away somebody's gun and they don't have the full opportunity to have the due process in courts, it's preemptive, it's, it's something that is premature in many ways, that's been articulated. Um, I wonder what your perspective is, Ashley, on this issue, because I think a lot of people were optimistic that although it had been taken out of the Violence Against Women Act, which I obviously understand it's its own um, separate legislative animal, and yet obviously very important, but this time not including it here, what do you make of it? Well, I'm still hopeful. Um, it is slowed down. It, it takes a long time sometimes in Washington to get things done, but this is moving faster than normal, so I'm not giving up hope. Um, I think it has to be in there, though, and it's critical. When I was a part of the Obama administration, one of the things that we practice is that when we were developing policies, we tried to make sure that we included the people most impacted. And in this instance, it's the victims of domestic violence. And if you look at people who work on this issue, domestic violence groups, they the research shows that this loophole would save lives. And so when you show the video of Senator Cornyn being booed, I'm glad he stood there. I'm glad he took it. And I hope he comes back to Washington and continues to work because this this bill is about saving people's lives and being a real leader in a moment of crisis in our country. Well, a couple facts here. I mean, one, according to the CDC data, an average of 70 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner every single month. It's a startling statistic. But, you know, Doug, part of this conversation, why I think oftentimes what happens and why the wheels of the bureaucratic institutions move so slowly is we've got big umbrella concepts, the idea of gun violence overall. Then you've got to have to drill down to the nuance of what people are reacting to. For example, a discussion around intimate partner violence might seem very much tangential to a discussion surrounding a school shooting, for example. The tragedy of it is obviously there, but the idea of not seeing the connective tissue. And I wonder, from your perspective, is part of the issue that it's been too broadly conceived in how to address gun violence in this country, and bureaucracy requires the specificity to be able to be reactive in a way that's going to actually move that needle? Yeah, look, specificity is important here. And, you know, the good news is for this framework that they started of places of specificity. So often when we've had, you know, horrific mass shootings, whether it's been in schools or churches or, or other places, you know, there's a mantra of do something. And do something, you know, is, is an understandable sentiment, but it's not a legislative strategy. So you get reasonable actors, as we do in this case, who are focused on specific things. And then we have to see if, you know, politics is supposed to be the art of the possible, what is possible? And, you know, I still, like Ashley, you know, am, am optimistic here, but it's a very cautious optimism. It's a very tempered optimism. This is going to be hard to do anyways. And as we saw with what happened uh, to Senator Cornyn, uh, there are a lot of politics at play here as well. Ashley, I'll give you the last word on this because I wonder, you mentioned the idea of, sort of the, the, the bureaucratic principles here. Is time the enemy? I mean, oftentimes we thought and heard about the school shooting. And, and unfortunately, I mean, we're, we're talking about, I think there's a calculation of there's been more than 56 mass shootings since Uvalde. Um, that's a very foreboding statistic, in fact. I wonder, the farther away we get from those mass shootings that capture national headlines, 
Are we moving further away from the possibility of having the implementation of legislation and negotiations? I'm not sure if not having them in the headlines is the reason why time is the enemy. Time is the enemy because every day we go without this legislation, more people die at the hands of gun violence. But time is also the enemy because we also are in a midterm year. And the closer we get to elections, the more people will start to walk back and get scared and and not want to act. And so we need um, uh, Chris Murphy. Senator Chris Murphy said that they were trying to get this done by July 4th. What a great way to celebrate Independence Day by doing really the work of the people. Um, But if it goes much past, you know, August recess, I am nervous, not because it's not in the headlines, but because politics, as Doug mentioned, will truly be at play. And I do wonder, of course, if you're somebody who is wondering as a Republican or a Democrat, what impact it might have on your reelection chances. The boos don't quite help incentivize, I think, politically. But we'll see. Ashley Allison, Doug, hi. Thank you so much. Always a sword of Damocles above us. Look... If tensions weren't already high at the Supreme Court ahead of the ruling on Roe v. Wade, well, now a scandal involving Justice Clarence Thomas's wife is growing even wider. The January 6th committee wants to talk to her, and she says she'll comply. But how much will she really say? And would her husband have to now recuse himself if she were to do so on any January 6th-related cases going forward? We'll talk about it next. The idea of a Supreme Court justice's spouse being involved in an attempted coup, well, that's staggering by itself, if true. But when you consider the court itself is now barricaded from the public, well, the justices now need armed protection. And even before all of this, public approval of what is supposed to be the apolitical branch of government was underwater. This is a court in crisis at least in their public image and perception. And even as we wait on what could be several landmark decisions, the question is about what the legacy of the court might ultimately be. I want to talk now with this, about the state of the court with our own Joan Biskupic. Joan, I'm so glad to see you here tonight, particularly. You are the expert on what the Supreme Court really is doing, a noted biographer on many of them as well. So I'm glad to have your expertise. I got to ask you first, for people who are hearing about consistently the spouse of a Supreme Court and thinking about, hey, I thought even a hint of impropriety forced a judge to recuse him or herself. You're laughing because those rules don't really apply to the Supreme Court. What are the parameters? It's really in the hands of each individual justice. Remember, each of these nine justices are appointed for life. They do have ethics guidelines. They do. Uh, they are part of a, uh, a federal. They fall under a federal law that says that if there's an imp- appearance of uh, impropriety or a conflict of interest, or if a reasonable person could suspect that there would be a conflict then the person should recuse. But that is a very subjective judgment. And Chief Justice John Roberts has said that he trusts that his eight colleagues will be able to make that judgment, and it is in the hands of the individual justices. Now, you know, Ginny Thomas is getting further linked to the, uh, you know, the attempted coup, the, you know, protests at the the assault on the Capitol, the rampage. Uh, She already had sent uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, messages saying we have to stop this great that the left is engaged in. And as you know, Laura, the new 
uh, communications that the January 6th committee has show her uh, talking to John Eastman, who was a legal architect of something that uh, he himself seemed to admit would be illegal. And that would be to have Vice President uh, Pence actually not certify the election and throw it to uh, Donald Trump, Trump for a second term. So, Joan, if she were to testify in front of the January 6th committee, um, would that be something that might com be more compulsory and have more pressure from the court? I mean, I know I want to play for you for, before we answer that question what Justice Sotomayor has had to say about Justice Thomas. And I play this only to sort of orient the idea that there's been a lot of reporting, and you yourself have talked about, um, the idea of some mistrust among the justices after the leak, after the leak of the draft opinion. Let's hear from what, what Sonia Sotomayor had to say about her opinion of the justice, Clarence Thomas. Sure. He is a man who keeps, cares deeply about the court as an institution, about the people who work there, but about people. We share a common understanding about people and kindness towards them. That's why I can be friends with him and still continue our daily battle. So obviously there's a little bit of saying, hey, we can still be friends. I may not agree with you, essentially. Is it seem that their camaraderie is still going strong? They have uh, very many layers to their relationships. Let me put it that way. The camaraderie <laughs> is not still going strong. You know, look, I've always said that they will always close ranks against outsiders, especially those of us in the media, in the news media. But face it, think of everything else that Justice Sotomayor has said recently, including just about a week ago, Laura, when she wrote in a dissenting opinion that this new and, you know, uh, reconstituted, had a, you know, restless majority was just trying to diminish legal remedies across the board. You know, she had referred earlier to the stench of the court. So she, she is saying many things, but she's also trying a little bit to lower the temperature. But when we yeah. see the rulings that are going to come in the next two weeks, I don't think they're going to be able to lower the temperature, Laura. And one of those, real quick, Joan, I want people to be aware of yeah. one that's coming up. It involves the Miranda warning. You, everyone can probably recite the Miranda warning from having watched infinite episodes of Law and & Order and the marathons. Tell me real quick, what's at stake here? I hear that they are trying to assess whether that warning should still be issued. That's, that's stating a little too broadly, Laura, but I do want to say I'm so glad you brought this one up because everybody's paying attention to abortion and, and gun mm -hmm. rights and religious liberties. But this is a case that at the center of the, uh, the dispute is the famous you know, Miranda ruling. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to uh, have a lawyer. But it's not a question of whether um, you have to have the evidence withheld if you haven't been read the Miranda rights. It's a question of whether someone who has not been read his Miranda rights can bring an individual civil rights action against the officer who failed to do that. So it's a, it's a, um, kind of a, a side question on it. But during oral arguments in this, Laura, in April, just as uh, Elena Kagan said, do we really want to diminish this right in any way? Do we want to uh, undermine the legitimacy and the integrity of the Supreme Court to in any way diminish Miranda rights, even though this isn't a direct assault on it? So it's one that plays into yet another question of precedent at the Supreme Court and the overall institutional integrity of the Supreme Court, Laura. Joan Biskupic will be watching that. I'm so glad you continue to remind us that there are many more cases we're waiting to hear back from. And if the Supreme Court's ruling on it, very important one. Nice to see you.
Thanks, Laura. Now, listen, if you're planning to get back on a plane this summer, one thing might get in the way, the lack of pilots. Coming up, the urgent appeal for help with crews pushed to their limits, next. The summer of flight cancellations is on. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is now pressing airline CEOs to come up with plans to head off the travel disruptions. Pilots for Delta Airlines say they're being overworked, even as the airline cancels flights. The Delta Pilots Union published an open letter to customers on Thursday, writing in part, quote, We have been working on our days off, flying a record amount of overtime to help you get to your destination. At the current rate, by this fall, our pilots will have flown more overtime in 2022 than in the entirety of 2018 and 2019 combined, our busiest years to date. We empathize and share in your frustration over the delays, cancellations, and travel plans you've experienced. We agree it is unacceptable. I want to bring in now Captain Evan Bach, a Delta Airlines pilot and vice chair of communications for Delta's Pilots Union. Captain, thank you for being here today. I must ask, what was the impetus for writing this, the open letter and the frustrations? Has there been many complaints from passengers, or was it something that you collectively wanted to begin to at least acknowledge that frustration, even in your own right? Sure, Laura. Thanks for having me. Um, Our our issue really began a, a while ago during COVID, and we've been making it very clear to Delta management for quite a while that we are not staffed appropriately for this summer flying. We don't have enough pilots, and the company is scheduling more flights than they can fly. We've been very vocal about it for the last few months. We've been picketing at Delta bases and hubs throughout the system to send that message that our pilots are tired and we're frustrated, we're fatigued, and we really want the customers to know through the letter that that we understand we we share in their frustration as well. So we wanted to make that very clear. Has the reaction from Delta been such that you felt compelled to say publicly? Because obviously there was not the relief that you were asking for. I mean, I see the cancellations. We had the warnings about many flights being canceled over the course of the summer. One would think with the cancellations that would solve the staffing issues. It has not, you're saying. Yeah, it's a very complex issue. And, you know, we knew going into this summer that that staffing was going to be a problem. And the company, to their right, has listened to us to some degree. In July, they've agreed to pull down flying. But we're seeing the issues now. We're seeing a lot of the the cancellations and delays going on now. The Delta brand is proud, and we're proud Delta pilots to offer a high level of customer service. And that's something that we really want to maintain. We want to maintain that proud brand. We're long-term stakeholders at Delta Airlines. I've got 20, 25 more years of flying left at Delta, and I want it to be a company that I'm proud to work for. I mean, I, we too, as passengers, would like you all to be safe, to be rested. I mean, I know that I fly all the time, and when I hear things like the fatigue of a pilot, it's concerning. And I know there's also, you're up against the idea of mandatory retirement ages throughout the airline industry. I think it's at 65 years old. Not that you're anywhere near that. I can see your youthful glow. But the idea of thinking about how it's going to create issues down the line, if there's already staffing issues now, is it a long-term problem that really needs to be addressed? That's a great question. Uh, we look at it really as a supply issue right now. Like a lot of industries, we're seeing um, a supply issue in pilots at the moment. It'll eventually be solved, but we've been bringing this up with Delta management for a very long time, that we're just not properly staffed. 
And you're seeing it now in the delays and cancellations at Delta. Delta has reacted. They have a statement that says we continuously evaluate our staffing models and plan ahead so that we can recover quickly when unforeseen circumstances arise. Pilot schedules remain in line with all requirements set by the FAA, as well as those outlined in our pilot contract. That's their statement in reaction to what has been said. What's your reaction to their statement? Absolutely. Well, that they're absolutely correct. And the most important thing to remember is that we will fly safely every day, every flight. That's our number one priority on every flight. The other thing to remember that the most important safety tool, safety measure in every flight deck are two well-rested and well-trained pilots. So safety is our number one priority every flight. Safety first, Captain Evan Bach, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for watching the CNN special report, Megaphone for Conspiracy, Alex Jones is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.